We've had a few good discussions recently on the podcast dealing with innovation in housing. That's right. We had Bobby Turner talking about his social impact model, Kent Colton talking about the Ivory Prize finalists and winners, and Mike Kinsella talking about some of the innovative work on the research and policy side. One of the big lessons from these discussions and others we've had on the show is how complex and interconnected the world is. For so many of us, housing is at the center of our lives. It's where we live. It's, it's where we dream. But when it comes to innovating and addressing the fundamental housing affordability challenges, it takes a lot more than thinking about housing alone. Which is why we're lucky to have someone on the show today who has seen these challenges from a variety of perspectives, perspectives that are vital to addressing the affordable housing crisis. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And I just realized that we didn't do one of our number gags in our intro. So Steve, I've got a number for you. Okay, I'm ready. One. That's the number of people we know who have run a major nonprofit affordable housing developer, a major government housing program, and a major university housing policy and research center. And that's who we have on the show today. So we're thrilled to be joined by Carol Galante, the current faculty director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, the former commissioner of the FHA, and the former president and CEO of Bridge Housing Corporation. So Carol, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So we have a lot to talk about today uh, on innovation and other things. But before we get into all of that, can we just start with a little bit of background on the Turner Center? Sure. Well, you know, I actually started the Turner Center uh, when I came to UC Berkeley just under five years ago. And uh, we started it with the idea that uh, we really needed to have evidence-based research uh, in order to impact both policy and practice change around housing affordability issues. It's, um, you know, and that that's one of the things that I feel like I've been in and out of all of my life, which is both the practice and the policymaking and the development. Uh, and so, you know, putting kind of evidence-based research uh, behind that uh, seemed like the logical next step for me uh, as I was going to UC Berkeley to uh, both teach and uh, then start up this center. So that's what I did. That, that has to be a sort of dream job, I would imagine. It, 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 you know, well, it is, I mean, every job, I feel like every job I've had is a dream job. Uh, you know, it's, it's been what I wanted at the time, but this really feels like the right, you know, if I could call it the capstone in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes I could be very frustrated as a housing developer needing to work within programs that people put together who obviously had never actually tried to do development before or financing programs that, you know, they had never actually had to use to be on the other side of. And so, you know, it was, a, it was just a great integration uh, of all of that. And, and the last thing I would say is that it also gave me the opportunity to really, uh, I don't know what the word is here, but, um, you know, streamline off of the inspiration of my, one of my mentors and, and colleagues, Don Turner, uh, who we named the center after. And uh, Don uh, was a professor of architecture at one time. So if there's anyone else who has kind of done all three of these things, um, it might have been Don. Uh, he was a professor of architecture. He uh, ran the State Department of Housing and Community Development in California, and he founded uh, Bridge Housing Corporation. And, you know, he uh, 
uh, died tragically back in the 90s in the Clinton administration um, on a mission to Bosnia to help them figure out how to rebuild their war-torn country. Um, so, you know, it's just, it feels really fitting for me uh, at this point in my life to be doing something that you know, draws inspiration from him. It's really important work. That's that's for sure. And and even over these five years, um, affordability crisis has has gone from an issue that's talked about in you know, research and policy circles to to becoming something that's you know, ever present. So, uh, um, does that change how how you approach things, or give how how does that affect the Turner Center? Well, I would say that I think, you know, we, we started at a time where we were coming out of the recession, the last recession, and um, into this housing affordability crisis, particularly in high cost areas uh, where, you know, there hadn't been enough built, there hadn't been enough attention to housing affordability issues. It was really around recovery from the recession. And uh, so it was kind of the right thing at the right time. And then now, I mean, with COVID-19, you know, we're in a different place in terms of what the housing affordability issues are um, or what they're going to be going forward. So uh, I think what exactly one needs to uh, work on changes a bit, but the basic problem uh, remains the same, which is uh, people aren't making enough money and there's not enough housing being built for them to you know, afford uh, the high cost of, of housing. So let's talk about some of the Turner Center programs that address that and some of your research. You know, are there uh, a few programs in particular that are really focused in that space? Well, we have different what I would call initiatives in the policy and research um, area. And I would say one thing that we have done uh, a lot of is really dig into what creates the costs of uh, actually building new housing. And we've done a whole series of work on that, uh, including just, you know, an educational piece about, you know, the math behind housing development that I think many people just don't understand. Where does the money go? You know, how much goes to construction? How much goes to permit fees? How much goes to um, financing? How much goes to the equity players? Uh, You know, there's this partly this attitude uh, amongst some that it's all about greedy developers and what they make. And when, when you look at the stack, you know, that's just not the case. And so really educating people about all those components uh, really has an impact on how people think about what the solutions uh, to the to the problem should be. So that's one area that I think we're really proud of. Uh, we've done a lot of work on on costs and what goes into it. So that's that's one area that um, from the policy research side that's been really important. So as you as you learn these things about the costs, then um, uh, how, who are the who's the target audience that, that then takes this information on and can and can then you know, make either policy or on the ground changes that are that affect the markets? The target audience is really local governments, state governments, federal governments. So, you know, primarily uh, the the end user of the policy changes that it would take to make a difference. And then I would also say the housing industry itself. So there are things we've done, for example, around finance uh, where, you know, 
I'll just say, you know, changes in the regulatory environment around the Federal Housing Administration or, um, you know, even what Fannie and Freddie can do um, are, you know, can be impacted when people see what what the effect is of the rules and regulations we have um, in place around, say, access to uh, a loan product. So, you know, the we, we try to influence both the practitioners in the field and uh, the policymakers. And I think that's a really fascinating part of, of housing and, and affordable housing is that the two have to have to interact. Right. And uh, to get to get housing delivered to the market. And do you, do you find um, that the lessons learned from from either side uh, help them understand um, the reasons for the, the different pieces and 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 change the actions on, on, uh, are, are there notable changes that you, that you would, um, highlight? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that comes to my mind, which may seem like a small thing, but is really actually quite, um, impactful is all the work that's been done, uh, not just by us, but by, uh, others around, uh, accessory dwelling units and, you know, that as a source of additional housing production, um, you know, granny flats or duplexes, uh, in single family neighborhoods. And, uh, there's been just a ton of work done around, you know, how it, actually is more affordable, like just by design, you know, small units in someone's backyard are more affordable to rent. Uh, there's been great uh, work around when you do make some zoning changes to permit more accessory dwelling units in a community um, and you study the effects of that, you actually see the number of permits go up to create this kind of housing. So, you know, we did some work on that, uh, looking at Portland and um, Seattle and Vancouver. And, you know, I, I think it was quite influential in getting California to uh, really move the dial on their statewide requirements uh, that localities need to have, uh, you know, create the ability for uh, practice for practitioners to actually build affordable uh, accessory dwelling units. And now what we're seeing is like a I want to say almost a plethora of startups, you know, that want to be in this space of building more accessory dwelling units and helping homeowners figure out how to navigate the process and how to finance um, their uh, their work. So, you know, you definitely see that interaction between sometimes it's the policy that needs to lead in order to get an industry that's interested. And sometimes it's, you know, uh, an industry that will, in other circumstances, I would say, uh, you know, kind of force the hand of policymakers to uh, see the wisdom of a new innovation uh, that uh, needs to be adopted. You know, one of the fascinating things to me about ADUs is and not just, you know, what they are fundamentally, but what they represent, which is, you know, at this point in time, it's not really an either or solution. It's, it's not you know, this answer at the expense of another answer. It's really like, let's try everything, right? There's so many different ways we can try and tackle this and all of them are necessary. Absolutely. All hands on deck. And, and so I think that leads me to uh, something new at the Turner Center, which is the housing lab focused expressly on helping some of these startup uh, companies. So you want to tell us about that a little bit? 
Sure. Yeah, it's uh, really it's been really exciting. We just finished our first cohort of six entrepreneurial companies, selected them out of a you know pool of 135 or so applications, and really worked with these six companies for uh, about five months. Uh, and you know the whole focus was on. Uh, having these companies understand the regulatory environment in which they work uh, and how they, you know, could, you know, what, what might stymie them and how they might, um, how they might grow. And, you know, it was really important just, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, because, you know, the, the, how the economy works, how the fam, you know, how families live all have changed radically in the last century. And yet, you know, we're still building and financing um, homes the way we were doing a hundred years ago. And uh, that just isn't working. And so this, you know, working with companies who are you know, dedicated to creating more housing and making it more affordable uh, in an innovative, out-of-the-box way is um, what, we, what we set out to do. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your first cohort, how you selected these companies and who's in them. Sure. Well, we um, we had an advisory board uh, that included uh, both people who had a lot of extensive experience in government and policymaking, uh, an advisor who, uh, you know, ran a major uh, mortgage uh, operation. Uh, we had uh, philanthropy. We had some potential kind of what I would call social impact investors, um, all, uh, you know, looking at these applications uh, with us. And we, we, us meaning myself and uh, our program director, uh, but I would say that, um, you know, the the kinds of companies we were looking for were relatively early stage. I mean, they needed to have a good idea that we could see the potential in to scale. Uh, but uh, they, you know, they needed to already be working on it and, uh, you know, have some traction that they were starting to see uh, in, in the marketplace. And then we also looked for, you know, kind of the integrity and a commitment of the founders to this tension between wanting to do good. Uh, these are all private companies who need to make it financially and need to have investors. Uh, but we also really wanted them to have some intentionality around their product, uh, you know, being helpful uh, to creating housing affordability or housing access. So, you know, we had six companies. Uh, one was Asusu that uh, worked on a credit reporting for renters, you know, to help them, you know, ultimately gain access to home ownership. Uh, in a different but similar vein, and interestingly, these two companies are working together to some degree now. Uh, there's a company called Diggs, which actually had a home uh, savings application uh, that where they worked with lenders to help uh, prospective borrowers, uh, you know, budget and save for uh, purchasing a home. Uh, and then we had, you know, uh, two different companies in the accessory dwelling unit space, uh, Prefab ADU and Dweller, uh, both focusing on different aspects of uh, the accessory dwelling unit market. And uh, PadSplit, which is uh, home sharing, uh, you know, taking single family homes and creating more space uh, within those single family homes for individuals uh, to, you know, have good private living um, 
space within them. And then I would say last but not least, a, a company called Hurry Home that was focused on low low value homes uh, in particularly in the Midwest core uh, that were so low value that, you know, 50 or $80,000 that uh, it was very hard for folks to get a mortgage on them because it was just, you know, too much, um, uh, too much process and paperwork for lenders, you know, to bother with uh, making a, you know, $40,000 loan. So um, they had a totally different, model for um, helping people get into home ownership. So you know, uh, clearly a wide range of uh, solutions, but you know, all uh, with the intentionality we were looking for. Uh, with, with that group, I'm curious then, um, as, the, as they get selected uh, to be in the housing lab, uh, what, is, what is the c- connection point? And, and as you said, there, there's a couple that are working together now. Is it uh, is that because of being together, be, be, both being in the housing lab, or how did that come about? Sure. Well, uh, absolutely, it was because of being in the housing lab. So these six companies, um, you know, came together five times for you know two to three days. We had a, a great range of advisors who would work with them on individual coaching, and then we had you know some curriculum that we all did together, and you know the network effect of these companies working together, you know, as a cohort also led to some partnerships uh, between them. And then it also led to partnering with some of our advisors on a longer term basis. So, you know, uh, for, for example, uh, you know, pad slip, pad split engaged um, one of our advisors to really help them with a nationwide or state by state look at their next markets that they wanted to be in and the regulatory environment in those local markets. Because um, for the work that they do, uh, what's really critical is the local, you know, zoning around, you know, how many people can live in a single family home and and things of that nature. And uh, so really coming up with the strategy for how to engage with local and state government uh, is a relationship that we uh, put together. We obviously couldn't solve all those policy issues for every state in a five-month period in the lab, but, you know, we set them on the right um, path, I would say, uh, for that kind of interaction with, um, with the regulatory environment. So are there particular things that you found about, you know, working with very new companies, you know, companies with big ideas, but, uh, you know, are still growing their experience. Right. I think the biggest issue is um, probably, you know, for every startup, uh, not just those in this, this housing uh, cohort and could apply to nonprofits or, as well, is, you know, the need to stay focused on execution so getting the technology and the platform if that's what you're doing right or your prefab adu and you're uh you, you don't want to trans transition into a factory environment and uh from you know a more traditional um building of of an adu uh, so so focusing on the execution at the same time you have to be focusing on growth and uh the longer term and uh fundraising and it's a, it's a different skill set 
you know, sometimes to the ones who are executing versus the ones that are needing to be more growth and visionary uh, oriented. And so I think the biggest thing that these companies had to think about is, you know, when do they bring on it? you know, people with complementary skill sets to themselves as the founders, you know, they can't do it all. Um, even if they're, you know, co-founders uh, that, you know, there needs to be a team, but, you know, they need to have enough uh, uh, progress that, you know, they can raise the money to bring on that team. And it's a constant uh, chicken and egg kind of conversation. So I think we, we spent a fair amount of time uh, kind of working through that business planning process with some of these companies. I can imagine your experience at Bridge and FHA probably uh, helps out quite a bit here. How, how has that uh, uh, sort of influenced your work with the with the housing lab? It definitely influenced my, uh, my work with them in two ways. One, I would say, is because, you know, I have been a CEO uh, of a major company. I did take over at a time of crisis. Uh, I you know, have the experience of that um, is, is now, and I feel for companies in the COVID-19 situation, because, you know, I, I've been through many recessions. And so those decisions about when do you add staff and, you know, how do you think about that? And, you know, what's your view of the future? Uh, I think is just really hard to, you really need people to just talk those issues through with uh, and, you know, find peers. And so I think that was uh, one thing that I really um, brought both from my bridge days and from my FHA days, um, you know, how to make organizational change and growth and contraction when necessary, things like that. Um, But the other thing is really just the interaction with the policy environment and the political environment uh, that uh, particularly around housing issues, both at the state local level and at the federal regulatory level. And, you know, the biggest thing that housing startups need to um, focus on that I think is not part of the typical startup culture is that it's a highly regulated environment, right? You can't build a building without getting a building permit that meets certain criteria. And if you do, you know, there are serious consequences if you just go out and start building um, or build it, you know, not to code. Uh, you know, people can die if the building falls down. You can go to jail. Like, it's not the ask for forgiveness you know, instead of permission, uh, world in housing. And that's true in finance. It's true in building. It's, you know, it's, um, it's highly regulated. Yeah. You know, it's like so much of design work is just, let me try it out and see if it works and then try it again and try it again. So exactly, exactly, exactly. And so that, that can work to some, for some parts of what some of these companies are doing, uh, relative to their technology platforms. Uh, but that doesn't work when it comes to, you know, how you finance your pro- a product for a consumer or, again, how you um, run your factory or how you uh, build a building. So um, you mentioned uh, the, the seriousness of COVID-19 and how that's impacting the housing market. And you're, you're looking at that together with the folks that are, that are in the lab, but also you just have a view into the housing market given your previous roles. 
and where you were during um, the last recession. And you know, there, there's things that uh, we can we can learn from the last recession, but each one's different. And this one is is one we're still trying to learn about. So I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are uh, as as it relates to the housing market and this crisis. Sure, you know, I I would say I think there's certainly some differences, you know, given how this um, situation came about. You know, we're calling it a pandemic recession. Uh, you know, it's a big shock to the system. It's you know the unemployment is happening all at one time. That you know that was much different than uh, the last recession. Uh, but I do think that one of the things I learned is, uh, you know, we didn't know how bad the last one was going to get. And so maybe we didn't take strong enough action early on um, to prevent it from getting worse for individuals. And uh, I, I'm concerned that we need to focus on that uh, in this situation so that, you know, the housing markets and individual families get less disrupted um, than they otherwise would uh, if we took more action now. The other thing I would say is what's, uh, you know, so, so challenging today is because this uh, was so sudden, uh, there's just not a lot of preparation for what the recovery looks like. No one's been through what this recovery might look like. Uh, but I do think it's important for us not to lose sight of there will be a recovery. And one of the lessons I learned from the last recession, and again, it may not play out the same way, but it could, which is when the economic recovery happened, it happened um, you know, kind of bumped along slowly for a while. And then, uh, you know, at least in the kind of high cost markets where we do a lot of work, uh, rents just and home prices just went through the ceiling instantaneously, like practically instantaneously. And they did that because we hadn't focused during this whole period of time on continuing to build more supply, um, on, on continuing to create the right regulatory environment for um, new new housing to you know come to market, and so we were caught dead you know flat on our feet, and and when people did get jobs again and started leaving their parents' basements and um, you know et cetera, like there there it was already out of control in terms of. Uh, house prices and rent increases. And so I, I would like us to learn from that this time and be sure that we collectively, you know, as uh, players uh, focus on, uh, on that longer term as well. And, you know, it's a good time to make some, you know, uh, state, local, federal regulatory change to, uh, you know, have those things in place. So when the market turns, um, you know, uh, you know, we can turn the spigot back on more quickly. Yeah, and that that uh, does really dovetail with uh, what's been going on, sort of leading up to this uh, this uh, pandemic. Uh, that there was so much focus on affordability, you know, growing focus on affordability, growing focus on um, you know regulatory changes and, and other things that you know, states and localities can do to spur production and also on innovative work uh, like you've been doing at the Turner Center. 
So, you know, that's all I, I think very encouraging. Yeah, it is. And, and I, I, I do think, you know, for example, some of the companies we worked with in the innovation lab, but also, you know, just more generally, uh, the, the idea of working on cost efficiencies uh, is, you know, hugely important at not to lose sight of, you know, while, uh, while this is going on, because, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we, we can't continue to subsidize some of these developments to the extent that we, you know, in the affordable housing development world, to the extent that uh, local and state governments are doing right now, because they're not going to have, they're not going to have the revenue to do that. And people aren't going to be voting for, you know, big new tax increases on themselves to build more affordable housing. So we've got to get the cost down so that whatever dollars we get, you know, of subsidy can be stretched. In research from from the Turner Center, there were 16.5 million renter households who have someone in the household that are in an impacted industry um, that in this uh, COVID-19 crisis and already um, 7.1 million of those were, were cost burdened. You know, entering the crisis, we, we were already in such a difficult situation. Right. And um, it's, you know, and now that now we have, you know, additional people who are maybe not only cost burdened, but, um, you know, severely cost burdened. And uh, we already have a homelessness problem. And, you know, the last thing you want to do from a both public health and economic standpoint is end up pushing, you know, people into homelessness. Uh, and, you know, I, I like, so that's a real risk. It absolutely is um, critical. And, and like you say, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to consider just because of the, how serious the issue is. And uh, I think that the hope would be that people have talked about it a long time. Um, uh, and, and now the attention just has to focus here and hopefully, um, hopefully that focus will come, will create some, some solutions. And, and as you say, each, each, um, each thing that can be done, each approach uh, has, has merit in bringing down costs is one thing. Yeah. And I, I would say the other thing I would say about, um, about the situation is, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And you think about, again, local governments, state governments losing revenue, and yet, you know, they, they're going to want to get, um, new development back online so they can get those uh, fees from, you know, the developers and pay their staff and all of those things. Uh, But I also see uh, technology, you know, being able to play a great role at this point in in time. I mean, I'm, I'm watching now, you know, people are still trying to get projects approved through local government, city council meetings, things like that. And, um, you know, they're doing virtual, uh, planning meetings and neighborhood outreach meetings. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's just a world of technology tools that, uh, you know, could, could take that, uh, even further, uh, and one, make the process more efficient, but also make it, uh, more accessible to more, uh, people. I mean, that would be a, a great benefit if, you know, those folks who, worked all day who don't want to go to a 
you know, city council meeting at eight o'clock at night and sit there for three hours and wait their turn to give an opinion. Um, all of a sudden now, you know, if with technology enabled uh, community meetings, uh, you know, there, there could be a fairer and broader uh, participatory effect. Uh, and I think there's a real opportunity there for some entrepreneurs to um, expand that. So out of, you know, out of the problem can come some, you know, better solutions than, than we had before the crisis. And it, it's really remarkable like how much, you know, we've all learned and, and how many new things we are trying in the last, you know, four weeks, eight weeks, you know, a little bit longer. Uh, so I, I'm with you on that point and optimistic for what will come. So, Carol, I'd like to ask one last question before before we end the show, uh, which is which is this. So you've had you know three uh, very different roles, you know, head of a big developer, head of FHA, head of the Turner Center. Um, you know, what lessons have you learned from each of those and all of those together that can really see us into the future? You know, I guess I would say this, which is that um, in every one of those jobs, you know, there were times that were exuberant and exciting uh, and, uh, you know, just wonderful. And there are times when the environment uh, was challenging and, you know, it could be uh, stressful and it could be, uh, you know, not depressing, but uh, just challenging to kind of get through the the situation or the day. And um, I guess what I've really learned is that, um, you know, there's always a brighter uh, future and uh, there's always, you can always, you can come through anything and, uh, and thrive at the end of it. Uh, And you might not always be able to see that at every moment. And I think that's really something that I keep with me, you know, through this, you know, very challenging uh, time that just, you know, you've got to, you got to stay hopeful and you've, you know, got to rely on your own resiliency and um, also on the faith that, uh, you know, we're a very entrepreneurial, creative people and uh, we're going to solve these problems. Well, Carol, those are just fantastic insights that are that are really needed i think right now and uh um uh, a great perspective on on the now and that uh, how we'll get through this and uh thank you for being here and sharing this thank you for the work of the turner center and uh, uh we really appreciate you being on thank you both thanks for listening to this episode of the freddie mac multifamily podcast If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.